It's been such a long time since we last recorded, yeah. The Jordan High Podcast, it keeps on going. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Jordan High 2004 Podcast. This is Gonzo. And this is Steve. How's it going, Steve? I am happy to be here. I'm, I'm really happy to be recording it. I missed it. Me too. I was just telling Natalie, it's like, I miss Gonzo. It's like, I, I used to, I, I'm used to seeing him all the time and it's been like almost a month. We yeah. did, we did see each other at Teresa's house. Yeah. We had a little get together at Teresa's. That was then, fun. Yeah. So it's great to see you. It's yeah. It's good to see you. Did you have a good Christmas and New Year's? Yeah. We had a great time. Our oldest is a New Year's baby. This is what she wanted to do was like to go to a hotel and swim at a pool. So we got this, a hotel in Provo that like on the website said heated pool. So we're like, okay, we'll just be hanging out, like go swimming all day or, you know, take breaks, go up and watch mm-hmm. TV and then go swimming again. We go there. The water is like freezing. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, we heat it up to 80 degrees. And like, if you guys remember on New Year's Eve, it was like snowing really hard. Mm-hmm. The it, it was just kind of a bust, but <laughs> the kids loved just like hanging out at a hotel. Like there was a ton of snow on New Year's Day. Yeah, like a crap ton of snow. That wasn't that. That's not the same as swimming in a pool. <laughs> no, but we we had a good break. You know, it's like the kids just were lazing around, like just playing on their tablets all day long or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we had a good time. I think that's how I feel. Time off is really nice, but. After a week off or after an extended period of time off with the kids, it's like everybody's kind of ready to get back to a regular schedule. Oh, like yeah. instead of staying, because we had family in town, so we were like staying up late every night. And I'm like, I'm not 18 anymore. Like I I like going to bed like before nine if I can. Dang. And so I joke, like to this day, my kids don't even know that New Year's is like a thing. Like, <laughs> New Year's Eve, like we go to bed early and we just go. But, uh, but it was really fun. It was fun to have the time off and just... Just hang out with family and, you know, play games and just, I don't know, unwind. So it's been really nice, but I'm I'm glad to be back to a normal schedule again. That's good. You and me and Drew have this thing that we want to do. Yeah. So for for Christmas, um, Drew and I have been talking. He's like, I want to do like a fitness something, you know? And we're like, okay. So I bought myself a Fitbit and I've like... It's, I've had it for three weeks. I've, I've loved it. You know, I just love that, like, measuring my heart rate, measuring, like, my sleep and all this stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'm telling you all about it. I'm like, yeah, I should get one. So I think we're all going to get, like, like a health, like, step tracker or Fitbit and then just, like, do some sort of, like, motivational health thing. It's like, I just can't wait to see, like, have Drew send me a picture of himself naked every week. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the goal. Uh, but... You don't need a fitness for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to get one still, but um, I think that would be good. I I made it through like 18 books last year. Um, oh, there were some cool. that I really liked, some I, they were okay. But I think it was a good book here just to try to grow my learning. Um, I, I will say I ended the year kind of more down, just like emotionally. I just felt, I've been feeling really stressed and... I don't know, just not where I, maybe like below my normal baseline where I usually yeah. am. I just felt more like on a low. And so that's kind of where I'm starting the year of making that more of a priority. I did a lot of counseling and therapy last year, but I kind of, after we moved, 
just got distracted. I let myself get distracted by the things that were stressing me. It's like, oh, I'll take care of myself after I take care of the more important business things. And uh, I think it wore down on me a lot. And so this year, I have things that I want to do personally, just like therapy-wise, is to work through. I have plans to do more like business focused type stuff I, I don't know you and i joke about a lot of like business things we want to do yeah. and but there's also in our joking there's like a lot of seriousness yeah yes. and i think i just want to start live like doing things i want to do and taking bigger risks and uh just enjoy the journey that's awesome so who do we have on tonight <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are talking with darren longman and i'm really looking forward to this one he he's a great guy i'd say i would say yeah like a good friend from high school. Probably, I didn't spend a ton of time with him, but we had a lot of similar friends and we did spend a lot of interactions together. So right. he's somebody that when he wanted to come on, I was really excited about. And I know we've been messaging with him before. I know you've talked a lot with him yeah. over the last year. And so it's it's one that I've been looking forward to. So I think it's going to be great. All right. So here's our conversation with Darren. Darren, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going it's great. So good. It's, it's good to see you. You're looking good. You just said this. <laughs> <laughs> For the listeners at home, we just hashed out all the, I guess, the introductions before we started. So. <laughs> yeah. All the niceties. But you look great. It's just like, you're looking Thanks. good. It's great to be able to see your face. You too. You guys look great. Oh, thank you. You're thank you. from different states. Yeah, you're in yeah. Texas, right? Yep, I'm in Texas. All right, so give us a quick catch-up of what's been your life since high school. I went on a mission to Brazil to take called Paraná in the south of Brazil, just south of Sao Paulo, if you're familiar with Brazil. I got back from my mission. I got married really quickly um, to my high school sweetheart, and that didn't work out, unfortunately. And then uh, we weren't married very, very long. But And then when that ended... I just kind of like was uh, trying to find a job. I got a job at Ultradent, actually. Steve, you probably know Ultradent. I do, very well. Um, yeah, I think we've actually talked about this, right? So I was at Ultradent for a couple of years, uh, and Austin Healy was there and Trent Wilkes. Um, I think Austin's actually who got me the job there. And then eventually I got a position um, in California. So I was trying to get out. I was trying to go to LA. I really wanted to, to leave Utah. And so I got a position there as a sales representative selling uh, dental products in Los Angeles, in Pasadena specifically. It was the San Gabriel Valley is where I was at. So um, I guess people familiar with LA would know San Gabriel Valley. And I did that for about, I think, three years in Los Angeles before I was canned. I was fired for not being a very good sales representative. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually pretty good at sales, but... I just like I didn't have the heart for it. It's not a job that that I that I could like get behind and love and therefore I slacked off a lot. Were you talking to dentists? <laughs> yeah, dentists, uh, <laughs> mostly the front desk, right? I mean, that's usually who I was speaking with or or hygienists, dental hygienists. I did speak with the dentists a lot because I would do a lot of demos and or they would they would want to know what's new. So I I did actually speak with dentists quite often. Uh I just like the pressure of like someone always like asking me numbers and if I was hitting the mark, um, that was really hard for me. So I think I like the social side of it, the, the, the sales side of it, the, the being present and, um, getting a demonstration and like the same things that I think made me okay at that or what make me like a teacher now. 
but I didn't really like the um, like the high pressure of sales. It really got to me, and, and so yeah, I only did that for a few years, and I and I started to dip, and they noticed, and they fired me. And there is kind of a lot of turnaround sales. I'm sure you all know that, but but in the meantime, in that time, I met my wife, my now wife Heather, and um, so we met in Los Angeles. We started dating, and then we dated for four years, and then we got married in 2014. I, when I got fired, I was like, I think I'm going to go back to school. I always wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to do that. Um, I knew I wanted to teach art. In fact, I had gone to school in Utah at Salt Lake Community College for a couple of years. And I originally I was thinking like, okay, I'll be a fine arts, uh, like a studio teacher. Like my first class uh, at Salt Lake Community College, I had a really cool art history teacher who kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, oh, I actually really like philosophy and religion and politics. And like, that's how I want to f- channel all of this, like artistic, uh, like all these views that I have, like, I want to channel it through art history. I think that, that was like a big eye opener for me. I ended up going into art history. Um, and later when I went back to school, that was my focus. So I knew at that point that I was going to teach art history. I was going to get a master's at least possibly a PhD uh, and, and pursue that career. So when I got fired, I just, I knew that was like the time that, you know, it was actually kind of a big decision because we weren't making a lot of money and it's very expensive in Los Angeles to live. And so making the choice to go to school full time was tough. And yeah, we struggled a lot to to get through that. Did you go to school in California? Yeah. So I went to Pasadena City College and then I transferred to UCLA. So uh, that was like kind of my hope was to transfer to one of the UC schools. So I did. I, uh, UCLA was my kind of like dream school. So I went to UCLA and um, I I didn't know like what focus I, I was like really keen on modern art, modern contemporary, but I also really liked Maya and ancient Mesoamerican art, which those things don't seem like alike at all. But there was um, I liked both of those a lot. And I ended up choosing Mesoamerican art as my focus because there was a professor at UCLA that I really liked. His name was John Pohl. And he, he became my advisor there. Um, and I think I kind of like followed that. I, I liked Mesoamerican art because I could look at archaeology and anthropology and uh, linguistics um, and some of the these these fields of ancient history that I couldn't really look at with contemporary modern. But I ended up still kind of like getting into that a little bit with uh, the Hammer Museum. So one of the museums that's, it's not the campus museum, but one of the museums very close to UCLA is the Hammer Museum. And I went and worked there as like a docent, like a student docent for two years. And that kind of like filled the gap that I had for loving, you know, contemporary art and being able to talk about contemporary art. Uh, and it was great because it got in the field of museum education, which is something I also really love. And I did, once I went to my grad program, I worked at the Blanton Museum of Art in Austin, Texas. So yeah, I finished up my degree at UCLA. And then I went to transfer. Um, I applied to six schools and only got into one, uh, which is kind of common. I think with grad school, you, you, you sort of, you know, you have to put out a ton of applications and hope that one of them will. And, and part of that is because they take you based on like what your interests are, like what's your focus. And do they think that the, the does the advisor think they're going to work with you well? And, um, and I went to UT Austin. They have this like big Mesoamerica meetings every year. And I actually went, I flew out. I kind of like, I wanted to show them that I was really serious about this. So I flew out there in 2018 and like met with the advisors that I was uh, potentially going to work with. And they liked that a lot. And 
um, they they um, gave me a, an offer a letter to to come there under their program and some money, which was really nice. Um, and so we moved out here. So we moved to Austin first. I went. I did my grad program there um, at UT Austin. Then after that, so th so I graduated in 2020. Um, I didn't walk. I you know like I watched my graduation on a screen. Um, a virtual it was a virtual graduation, uh, and that was hard because I knew I wanted to teach, but there weren't a lot of opportunities at that moment. Uh, and I put out so many applications that summer. I think I put out 50 maybe. Um, and oh, each wow. one of them you have to tailor to the school that you're trying to teach at. So it was like a, basically a full-time job to apply for jobs for an entire summer. And I got one call back and it was in Houston um, at this school called Lone Star College Montgomery. I interviewed for that. And at the same time I was interviewing for a museum education job in Chicago and that one didn't work out. And uh, luckily this, um, uh, he was the chair here at Lone Star College. He hired me as an adjunct. Uh, I don't know if you guys know much about adjuncts, but it's just, it's not like a lucrative thing. You're, you're freelancing essentially. You're teaching as a, like a freelance um, professor and you're, you're, you don't make a lot of money um, there's not a lot of security in it. Like you, you often don't know if you're going to teach the class until like a few days before it is going to go live because the class has to make, right. um, and so you'll get all prepared and ready to go. And then suddenly like it doesn't, um, make, so it's a stressful job. Um, and then I got some offers at San Antonio college, which was a lot closer. I was still in Austin. So I was driving to Houston, which is like a three and a half hour drive. Oh, wow. Uh, teach this class. And then I got an offer at San Antonio College. So I went there uh, and taught there. And I was actually sort of um, training under the emeritus professor who's now emeritus. But I was training under her to kind of take her place. And they were dragging their feet. They weren't, they, they kept kind of saying like, okay, well, maybe next semester we'll hire you full time. And in the meantime, the school that I had originally started at, Lone Star College, they were like, Hey, we have a position open. Would you want to apply for it? So I went through that process, which is uh, several months of interviewing, uh, and I got it. And so now we're we moved to Houston. It's North Houston, and I am a full time professor there at uh, Lone Star College Montgomery. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's and, what I've been up to. Yeah, and you still like so you teach, but you're also still doing like painting and and you're doing art still, right? Um, I love too many other facets of art, too many other time periods and movements and, um, and artists, and many of them contemporary and modern, modern contemporary. So uh, part of the reason that I wanted to teach at the community college level was because it would allow me like a little more time to focus on my own practice, to, to kind of um, focus on other topics. So yeah, to answer your question, I still practice. Um, usually in the summers or in the breaks, like either the winter break or the summer break, I'll just paint. And it's kind of cool because in the year I'm talking so much about art that, and I'm not really doing it because I'm too busy. So when I, when it comes to the summer, I have this like fountain like of ideas and of expression that I'm like really anxious to get out. So when it comes to that time of year, like I, I, um, like I kind of like go for it and do a ton of pieces. So yeah, that was like a big drive to, for, for teaching in, at this level. And so far it's been working out pretty well. I've been able to do pieces and 
put them in the faculty shows that we have here on campus and that kind of thing and sell them. I'm actually a couple pieces that I did last year. I'm going to donate to um, a charity for um, refugees, like Houston refugees. And so in the summer, I'm donating a few works to be auctioned off, which I don't know if they'll sell because I do a lot of self-portraits and I don't know what the market is for that <laughs> unless you're like Van Gogh or something. They don't really sell when you're not famous. Uh, I don't have a very marketable uh, like work. Uh, I've done a few pieces that are like a little more ambiguous about religion that I think people like. Um, and then I have sold a few like that. But the ones that are like me aren't lucrative. And I don't do it for that reason. So uh, <laughs> I do. And I, I, was, um, I was doing music for a long, long time. And uh, the last couple of years, I've been focusing a little bit more on fine art. But, but I do love music and I still make music. And I've done that for a long time. Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell us about like... High school Darren, who were you? Who were you back then? Yeah, that's just that, I know everyone says this, but that is a hard question to answer because I think I think we see ourselves like through our experience with other people a lot. Like I, I think it'd be easier to answer that if like Austin, my buddy Austin Healy was here, or if, like uh, or Adam Balk or somebody. I think that like they could help me with that. When when I saw that question and I've heard that question asked on the podcast before, I. I have this like vision of myself in my car and like, I don't know if you guys ever did this, but like at night, especially if I was driving somewhere in high school and I had like music on that I like really loved and I would like look at, like catch myself in the rear view mirror and be like, like just, I just thought I was like so cool in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that like a lot of my high school's experience was like me thinking I was really poetic and artistic and cool. And like, you know, driving in my car, listening to the cars, who's going, you know, like, what's <laughs> yeah. that song? Who's going to drive you home tonight? Like, I can still like see myself in like my car, listening to that song, like, you know, like, like a, envisioning my life as a movie when I was that age. I think a lot of us did do that. And so like, part of me sees it that way, but as, as like, I was this sort of like cool lead singer, um, <laughs> Jim Morrison poet type, but really I was just a very nerdy, I don't know, insecure kid. And I think a lot of that stuff and, and like what I was doing there was really just an expression of my own insecurities that I had at that time, an expression of like being kind of awkward. I was always balancing like being very goofy and loud with also feeling very introvert at times. Right. So it was a, it was always like a kind of weird battle with me because I, uh, with some friends, I would be so goofy and over the top and, uh, but inside I'd be like really reserved and I would want to kind of like, um, go inward and be away from people and be alone. And I think that's always been my life. Like I've always kind of like been back and forth on that. I, we were talking about that before the podcast started. Like it's actually kind of hard for me to talk about myself because I have a lot to say, but. But like, there's some things I like. I get guarded about, and I think that's maybe an extension of that when I was a kid. Yeah, I I think I the other thing when I was thinking about this question is, I had four older brothers, and I'm the youngest of five boys, so there was some awkwardness like around girls when I was really young. Like I think that my all through junior high and then like my first year of uh, high school, my sophomore year. That kind of made me feel weird and, and kind of withdrawn a little bit, um, not just with girls, but 
like I didn't have a lot of friends going into high school. I kind of like I had a lot in middle school. And then like my first year of high school, I was really reserved and withdrawn. And I don't know why I can't. I really don't know why that is now. But I was thinking about this uh, before. But it's actually Austin, I think, that kind of got me out of my shell a little bit. Austin Healy. So in ninth grade, no, 10th grade, we were in seminary. I swear one of you is in this story. Um, I would love to talk to him and, and see him. <laughs> Let's just say we both were. <laughs> yeah, you might have been. Um, I feel like it was a class where you got, you might have been in there, but it was a seminary class. I think it was 10th grade. And the guy was going around with a camera and like asking everybody like, like what their hobbies were or like what they were going to do over the summer. I can't remember, something like that. And he came to me and was like, what are you going to do? Or what, what's your goal? And I was like, oh, I'm going to memorize all the guitar chords on my guitar chord chart. And Austin and whoever he was talking to were laughing and making fun of me. And they thought I was the biggest dork um, on earth for that. And what's so funny is like the way that I actually started making friends was because of music. Like that was really the thing that I could connect with people um, and kind of get out of that shit, that sort of weird place I was in in 10th grade. And I started jamming with like John uh, Williams and um, uh, I jammed with Taylor Malmrose. I think he even mentioned Amaryllis when he was yeah, on the podcast. He did. Yeah. Um, a few other people. And then I jammed with Austin and I didn't know at the time that he was, thought I was this like huge loser. Uh, but he decided to jam with me and we totally clicked. Like we had the same music interests and I think we were on like a similar level in terms of like how good we were at music. Um, like Taylor's like so good at music. And by the way, Taylor, and I, Taylor was like part of our band too, but like, Austin um, and I, I think we're like on a similar level, maybe not quite as good. We also just had like a ton of fun and we would joke. And yeah, he, I credit him with, with a lot of like me coming out of that weird funk I was in and kind of going back to being more fun and loose in high school uh, and more like I was maybe when I was younger because he has, and I don't know if you guys remember Austin or know him now, but he's very, he, he exudes a lot of confidence and he has a lot of like, like he's very fun when you're around him. And I think yeah. that like I fed off that a lot. Like that's also what kind of like helped me be more confident with girls and like with all and making more friends. And uh, so I credit uh, Austin quite a bit with that. But I think my next couple of years, like I got a little more confident and and had a little more fun. But my senior year, I was dating someone very serious and um, I was in a serious relationship, I should say, and maybe missed out on some of that kind of confidence that I had. I mean, I don't want to say missed out because like every every part of our life is important and is part of our journey. So I don't want to say that, like, I regret that. But after school, um, a lot of that confidence I sort of built with that friend group really came out when I was when I was back from my mission. So it sounds like, I mean, and, and art and music have always been part. Because I remember, I remember specifically you drawing, like, a super awesome Spider-Man on, like, a whiteboard at somebody's, like, class. And I was like, oh, dang, that look, that's looking sweet. Yeah, I do remember you being very musical. Oh my gosh. Like, in fact, I remember asking you, it's like, when in high school, I remember asking you, it's like, hey, what's your favorite Journey song? And uh, I think you said, like, who's crying now? And I'm like, I don't know that one. So it's like, you like, give me like a, like a B-side of the greatest hits or something. So, okay, so I will totally give credit to Alex Fackerel on that. Another member, eventual member of Amaryllis, which by the way, Amaryllis... You kind of mentioned this, but Amaryllis was Austin's 
street yeah. we lived on. And we were like, that just sounds like a band name. And it also sounds like a band would choose the name of a street that like one of the members was in or lived on. Um, we had no idea that it was a flower. And so like later someone was like, you guys know that's a flower, right? And we're like, oh no, actually no. <laughs> but the story um, is so good though. <laughs> and it is, yeah, so it does cool. sound like a cool band name. I think so. I like, I made like shirt designs and all kinds of stuff for it. It holds up. Um, funny Gonzo that I don't remember that spider, but I, Spider-Man, but I did that stuff all the time. That, that was like the first stuff I did was comic. I love drawing comic book characters. So I, I have, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was you. One time we were at Alex's house and we wanted to make like a classic rock love song mix. But it was like I didn't yeah. want to just write on this on the disc like classic rock love songs. Like we spent all night trying to figure out. And we ended up and you drew this on the CD. I'll have to find it. It's a live show, so there's like a drummer, a guitar player, and a singer with lights shining down on them. And then we wrote the name of every like band that's on there no around the edge. I'll have to find it, but you drew it. Um, oh my gosh! It's like a culmination that. of all these things of the art and the music. That's going to be worth a lot of money someday, that CD. And I still, like I said, I credit, I credit Alex a lot. Alex was, like, really got me into Journey. <laughs> I think Alex gave me, like, the like the Journey Ubra uh, knowledge that you're talking about. But I was really into trying to sound like Steve Perry, and I have absolutely no vocal range, and no one can sing like Steve Perry. Yeah, so I... I now, you had, you had the voice of an angel, though. Oh, Thanks. It was I good. I think so. That's another one of my insecurities I had. I had. Um, I was always really worried about that, and I like I auditioned for a solo in acapella, and I was so scared. And I could sing like with Amaryllis, like I could sing like in front of a ton of people, and it wouldn't make me nervous at all. But that was so nerve wracking, and I botched it. It was so bad. I'm sure people remember it. Like it was so bad. Like I think it was that bad. Like, it must be, uh, <laughs> um, and I was so embarrassed. And like I just thought I was so like there were so many great singers in that choir. And and you were in that too, right? Um, I didn't do any solos though. <laughs> were you also in Madrigals? No. Yeah. So I have a I have a theory on why I even made it. I, I don't think I was. I think I became a much better singer after my mission. I took a lot of time to try to like refine my voice at that time in my life, but I don't think I was very good in high school. <laughs> but I remember my audition, he was like, uh, it wasn't that great, but I think he just needed boys for like for Madrigals and Acapella. <laughs> and so he was like, he said something to the effect of like, uh, it's there. Uh, I can see the potential. And so he put me in. But yeah, I, I had a lot of insecurities about that. So that's nice of you to say. But that, the journey thing, that's so funny. I would love to find that or love to see that CD. I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it. <laughs> so tell us who you are now. What, how have you changed since high school? When I you think who I am now, uh, I, I, I sort of miss in some ways, like the boisterous nature of who I was in high school. Like there was somebody a little, like who was really fun at that time. And I, after my mission, actually, that was like very much who I was. And, and I had a lot of fun at that time. And I think I was very confident. Once something that happened in high school, I, I knew when I was very young that I didn't really believe in the church, uh, the Mormon church. And it wasn't something that I was interested in. I didn't think I had a testimony. 
And I sat down with my parents when I was like 17 and, and just told them like, I don't believe in this. And they were like, yeah, you do. You just need to pray. And so I did, and I ended up going on a mission. And I think actually what's interesting, like I think going on a mission was maybe the first time choosing to go on a mission. That might've been the first time that I, I made like a very adult decision on something where I weighed the pros and the cons. And I knew that there was no answer. There was no, like, it might be the first time that I realized that there isn't like an answer as an adult, that you don't know what the best outcome is. And so you make the best decision you can based on what it's, what's in front of you. I knew that I had issues with the church, but there was enough there. I guess there was enough faith still. And there were so many things that I thought I needed by going on a mission. I think I really knew deep down inside that I needed to get out. I needed to get away, that that was really important to me. And I think that to answer your question of like who I am now, part of, I think the reason that I went is maybe that's sort of the undercurrent of why I left Utah and went to LA and why I left LA for Texas. Like I'm always on the move. I always sort of feel like I want to be on the move. I could see myself moving from Texas to the East coast or somewhere else. Um, I like living in different places a lot. I don't know where that comes from truly, but, but that might be the first time that I, I didn't have an answer, but I looked at all the possible outcomes and that seemed like the best outcome. So I went and because, because I made that decision, I was really devoted and I put everything into it. I tried really hard. I was like the elder that everyone's like mad at. Cause he's like too obsessed with the mission rules. I was totally that guy. I was super annoying and everyone hated me. Like for me, that was like a big deal. I was leading a girl that I like wanted to marry and I was, I like had plans. I wanted to do things. And so going on my mission, I took it really seriously. Like I, I was like, I'm leaving my home. I'm going to be really strict. And I think that was to a fault to some degree. Like I think that I maybe burned some bridges with some people on my mission that I wish I wouldn't have. And I was maybe like a little too rigid, but I got back from my mission and the same doubts, the same, same things that had existed before my mission were still there. Um, they maybe they weren't on the table for two years, but they were there waiting for me when I got back. So I got back and unfortunately, my, like I said, that, that marriage didn't work out. Uh, I got married very soon after my mission and that didn't work out. I think that like that was maybe the moment where I, I realized, okay, like it's okay for me to not, to not be a part of this. And it's okay for me to start pursuing who I am outside of that world. And so I joined a band, of course, and I, I teamed back up with Austin Healy. Unfortunately, Adam Bauk wasn't in it. By the way, I, I have to say shout out to Adam Bauk, who's just, I haven't talked to you for years, but I love, and I still miss talking to him. He's such a cool guy. Uh, but, and Megan, by the way. <laughs> we were all friends at that time. It was a good friend group. I, I started a band, and it was such a, like, 180. Like, we were sort of like, we were kind of like a Weezer U2 pop rock band in high school, something like that, I guess. Uh, we covered like the cars and U2 and, and like Journey. We tried Journey. And then Austin and I got into this like metal core band. Uh, we met a guy who's like uh, both on the night. He's, he's one of our best friends. His name's Mario Torres. And he's actually a really good friend with um, a number of people from our high school now. Uh, he's sort of been adopted into the friend group. Do you know? Do either of you know Mario? I know. He, my wife knows Mario too. Oh, really? Yeah. He's a good that's dude. A, that's amazing. I love that you know Mario. Mario uh, is one of my favorite people. He's been my one of my best friends for years. We talk all the time. He actually made, my dad passed away a few years ago. He made the headstone. 
he works at Larkin Cemetery in Sandy. He made the headstone for my dad when he passed away. So, which was one of the most amazing experiences, like having one of your really good friends do something like that is just really cool. Anyway, so he, Mario, me and, and Austin, we made this metalcore band and they were like, you got to scream. And I was like, I don't know how to do that at all. And so over the years, I tried to figure out how to scream. I literally like was a screamer in a metalcore band. So cool. called This Is My Escape. <laughs> I actually have it tattooed on my arms. There you go. Oh, nice. <laughs> we actually, I got, so Mario and I both, actually Mario, Austin, and I, we all got the tattoo after the band had disbanded. <laughs> uh, and we were all okay with it. Like, it was such a cool experience. It was such a great part of our lives that um, it was like very intentional, like this forever memory of and, and how much we love being in that band together. After my mission, that's one of the most uh, interesting and fun times of my life. And we, we partied a lot. It was probably like, uh, maybe like I swung too far the other way. Like that was probably like a time where I was a little too reckless. Like I, I, I felt very cooped up for a long time. So once like I, we started partying and, and drinking and stuff like that was like, I went pretty far down that way. So much so that one time Mario was like, like very matter of factly, like a, insinuating that I was an alcoholic and I was like, no nah, man, I'm just partying. And, uh, he was like, well, how many drinks do you have a week? And, uh, I don't remember what I said, but he was like, yeah, that sounds like you're an alcoholic. <laughs> and I, I don't think I, I, looking back, I don't think I was really that um, addicted, but I was definitely partying maybe too much. And so maybe it's good to have friends like that, that are telling you, Hey, this is like becoming a thing, but I was working at Ultranet at the time. And, and, uh, once I got that job and went out to LA, things changed a lot for me. And I was, um, I think that like, that was a mature, like a time of maturity for me when I moved out to Los Angeles, because I was by myself. I was living in my own place. It was all up to me. So I was living on my own, which I'd already done. I, after I got divorced, I lived on my own for about a year. Um, and then I moved in with Austin and Mario for a couple of years in Utah, but, but I, so I'd already lived on my own for a while, but I was by myself in a new city, not clocking in anywhere. So the, the way that I met Heather was, and I had already left the church, but I had no way to make friends. So I was like, whatever, I'll just call, I'll just find out what the singles word is here. <laughs> so I very sh shamelessly used the singles word to make friends, even though I had no interest in, in going to church. Uh, but I went to church and I, I did make friends with a few people. And just like one day, I guess one, one weekend, at like a hangout um, at one of my friend's houses. Heather was there. We clicked very quickly. And then like a month later, I think we found each other online and through like mutual friends, we found each other on Facebook and, and started dating. But I was, I was still, I don't know, at that point in my life, like I was still sort of not ready for a very serious relationship. Um, I had been in one other serious relationship and it was great, but that didn't work out. And I, I just, I wanted to be like young and in LA and, not tied down. And so it took me a while to come around, but Heather is such an amazing person. And um, I'm so grateful. She's such a cool, funny, amazing, amazing person. So we, we dated for, like I said, for about four years. And then, you know, this is one of the reasons I wanted to come on the podcast is that I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about our journey with infertility, because I think it's, I think it's important for people to hear like what that is like, if they don't know what it's, yeah, what please it is. Tell us. So about a year after, 
we got married, we um, were trying to have children and she could get pregnant, but would lose the baby. So our first one, we lost right at the end of the first trimester. And that's just, it's like devastating um, to do, to have that happen. And then, you know, cause you tell all your friends and you tell your family and you're all excited and, yeah. um, and then people ask you about it. Right. And then, yeah. you know, everyone wants to know and, and people at work are, are, you know, have questions. And I think that there are a lot of things that people don't realize that for someone who's experiencing infertility, that like they'll ask certain things or say certain things that they have no idea that could be really painful to that person. And that's something that we discovered. We had no idea. Uh, maybe like assumptions about how easy it is to have children for some people can sometimes change like that can really alter the way they speak to someone who does like essentially if it's very easy for those people to have children, I don't think they realize what they're saying can be very hurtful to people yeah. that can't. And that's very common. So we tried again and lost the next six and the same way. So our particular kind of infertility is recurrent miscarriage. So we can get pregnant, but she usually loses the baby around six weeks. So it's tough. It's a, it's a hard, I didn't, I don't, I didn't want to come on and sort of like be talking about all the hard things in my life, but I do want to talk about how important it is for, for people to realize that like not everyone's journey with this is easy and that um, this is a very real thing that a lot of people go through. It's something for everyone to be kind of aware of when they're having conversations with people that don't have children, that they might not be just being selfish or avoiding having children or, that they're they're too busy or whatever like there's all kinds of reasons that people could not have children and they very much want them so yeah that's just a little bit about that is there something that you'd say like what has this taught me like i mean since we're talking about that it's like it's, has yeah. that, have you guys learned because obviously like that's a lot of pain especially seven so you know seven attempts yeah. that's good and it's gonna be so hard on on heather's body as well you know and not only yeah, that, it's a physical like, toll. It's a psychological, toll, yeah, psychological toll. It's a yeah. That's the thing. I mean, it, um, it's all hard. Like any form of infertility is very difficult. Recurrent miscarriage is hard because your body, like that particular uh, form of infertility, is difficult because your body changes. You actually have the child, and then you have to pass. Like right, you have to like yeah, physically lose the child. Mm -hmm. Those things they add to to the weight of the emotional side of things a lot. And so I think what we've learned out of this, it, it learning to live with like, and try to be happy with not having that, that's really hard. I think that's one of, one of the things that we tried really hard to, to learn is how to be accepting and happy with the way our family looks right now, because it isn't a normal, I guess, quote unquote, whatever that is, whatever that means. It isn't, like what I guess what the typical family is supposed to look like. So we, we've had to kind of learn to accept that, which is really hard. That teaches you a lot that teaches you patience and it teaches you acceptance and it teaches you how to, um, how to be happy in situations where, where you don't think you can be happy and you have to sort of find happiness. And that's, I'm learning that a lot from Heather, I think. And she's so strong. She's so amazing at, at doing that. And, not that it's been easy for her, but I think that she's been able to find ways to be happy and move, move forward. And that's taught me a great deal about like how you find happiness within pain. 
and and we're like definitely not giving up you know there's still time for us to to do things we've seen a, a number of we've actually been lucky to see some really incredible doctors at um was at yale and went to ut and is one of the premier infertility specialists in the united states and so we've had these like kind of great opportunities to learn about infertility to help other people i think that's one of the cool things about this journey is we've helped a lot of people or tried to help a lot of people with the same thing to understand why it's important to have health care why it's important to have access to 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 doctors and to to procedures and to and, and like you know we've gone through a, a number of procedures so we can help people with that so yeah, there's a lot of good, I think, that has come from it. It's hard to say that, but um, like I said, I think it's like it's matured us in ways that I think are different than if we had kids. That's That comes with like its own kind of maturity. And I think that this has also provided us with, you know, a life experience with a particular kind of maturity. When I hear you talk about it, it sounds like specifically with the infertility thing that obviously you get like this empathy like you now have this experience and you know what it feels like so if you meet other people going through something similar you know how you felt and you know how you can how you would have maybe wanted to be supported and you can try to reach out and support people in that way and hearing yeah, you talk i also feel like it's really easy for people to be very cavalier with their statements like oh don't you guys just want kids like and i love that you say that, like and that could be a good lesson for life kind of in general. Like maybe get to know people before you just start assuming things about their life. Um, one thing or another. Like, yeah. oh, here, these two young people are married and don't have kids. So have you guys, like, have you had tried having kids? Like, I think yeah. people don't yeah. realize that's a very sensitive, you know, subject, painful subject for you guys. And I, and a lot of people go through similar types of things. I know infertility is not just super unique. Right. Like there's people that have these experiences and I think just the empathy aspect of it, just like trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and just maybe try to understand those people, get to know them before you start assuming X, Y, and Z about them. I, I was really bad at this when it first happened. I did not know how to, to react. I didn't know how to be there for her and to be a good husband for her at that time. And, and I feel bad about that, but it, it was just new. I didn't know. It was like a new form of trying to be there for her that I didn't, I wasn't good at. And I think a lot of people are. And I think that this is one thing that I can hopefully also do is with, with friends that go through similar things is, is tell them like, okay, like this, this, and this are not good ways to react to the situation. So yeah, I, I was not, it, it took a while for me to figure out like how to be the, the right kind of like to be supportive in a good way. Um, and to, to help her in, in, in ways that I could and, and myself. Right. I mean, it was really, it also is something that I don't think the first couple of times, like, I don't know if I really understood how it was impacting me. I knew it hurt, but it, it was different. Like the longer I, this, like the longer this happened and the more times it happened and the more time I had to reflect on it, the more I realized how it was just as traumatic for me in uh, at least emotionally, that was really hard. Like it was, it, I don't think at first I really thought about it that way. But yeah, that people do say things. I don't. We try not to get mad at that or like think less of people. For I mean, people they just don't know, you know. And we know that it's right. not like people are trying to be malicious. Um, but it is good to be aware. Uh, you know, whenever when someone has like a baby announcement, we're and we're always thinking in the back of our minds like, 
I hope it's kind of like in second trimester, you know, like I hope that it's kind of far along because announcing a baby like very early, we know how hard that is if you lose the baby. So I think we actually try to have a lot of empathy, empathy for people that do have those reactions or do have those kinds of questions for us because we know that it's not coming from a place of like, like they're not trying to be mean. I, it's for most people, this isn't like a big issue. It's yeah. not that hard. Right. So it's, we know that they just aren't familiar. And this is also why we have very strong opinions about, you know, abortion laws. And, and part of like our frustration about that is because some of these laws, particularly in Texas, very directly impact people who are going for, through infertility. So um, that's not something that people who are thinking only about abortion are considering. And, one thing that with very, very strict abortion laws, people who are experiencing infertility are also, who want children, are also often impacted by that kind of thing. So we've had just one miscarriage. And the thing that you never, ever hear about a miscarriage until you have one, and then you hear like, like tons of people have it. You know, it's just like, obviously it's it's common it's common enough but no, no one talks about it you know it's so true. i mean and i just remember that one experience for me was heartbreaking you know it was one of those things that you know you're at the doctor's office for the regular checkup and they're like oh we can't find the heartbeat and you know yeah. they're just like they leave the room and they're like oh we're gonna try with something else and then you know after a while you you know it sets in and then they tell you it's like hey you know it's you know, this baby's gone and it's like, it takes, it's a, quite a psychological toll on you. Yeah. So yeah, that's I can't hard. imagine you're at six, you know, I can't, you know, cause the, do you, what are your hopes? What are, what's your mind go through with every pregnancy and the dread as well of like, you know, is this going to happen again as well? It's like, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. It makes it like, we're not sure actually if we can, um, go through it again it's i think that we're optimistic about it about trying more trying a few more times uh but it's every single time is really hard because because that's always in the back of your mind Mm -hmm. and like impossible you can't not think about it i mean you can we we, like on a few of them we're like okay this time like only good thoughts right like only good thoughts and you think that's gonna be the thing like don't be stressed um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't be stressed. <laughs> or you think like, okay, I mean, I think maybe the hardest ones, and by the way, I'm so sorry. I mean, everyone, every single time it happens, it's devastating. So it doesn't matter if it's, if you've had kids and you have like, yeah, this is our thing. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's always really hard. And, and the people that I think where it was the hardest when people would say something that, that like really got to us was less so Steve, like the, the, the people going like, oh, you know, why don't you guys have kids? I think the hardest one would, would be when someone would downplay a miscarriage, which some people would downplay a miscarriage to us. Like, oh, yeah, like we have one. Of the, like, And I think that was probably the thing hmm. that really got to me was was people who thought like, because only that many weeks, no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we have. And, and so that one probably was the most uh, at first, at least like the thing that people would say that really get to me. But every time it's hard, no matter what, if you have kids or not. And the probably the hardest time is when we lost um, a baby was 
if we had done a procedure. So there are like pretty uncomfortable and painful procedures that can accompany infertility. It's another thing that people don't know about this journey is that, you know, Heather's had to go through some pretty intense procedures. And when you do that and then it doesn't work, I think that like adds another very difficult layer to it that like you've done this thing and each time it fails, it's like you've eliminated something that should have worked. Like you, you, like maybe this is the thing that we need to do. And like, maybe that's the thing that we need to do. And, and every time that like you check that box and it still doesn't work, you just, and like I said, we were seeing like very good doctors at, at both in Los Angeles and UT and, and in Austin, each time that doesn't work, it's just so deflating. So um, like maybe that's like another part of the journey that people don't realize, but you know, at the same time you're asking like what we've learned and, I was talking about, you know, finding happiness in all of this. We've gotten to a place where I think we'll we'll be okay either way. We still want children, but I think now we're 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 pretty cool with like the way our life is and um we're maybe more accepting of the the possibility that we don't have children or that it won't be the typical quote unquote nuclear family that everyone's you know, wants. The other thing is like the funny thing that we kept seeing during some of the abortion laws that were passed last year in Texas was just adopt. You just got to adopt. And it's like, I don't know if people realize how much money adoption is. Adoption is really expensive and takes a very long time. And there are all sorts of things that you have to consider with adoption that you've never thought of. Like, we, so we thought for a while that we would foster and we went to meetings and really quickly learned uh, all that's involved in that, the commitment of that. And you go to, you go to these, like, you go to these, these like trainings on, on like how to foster. And the first thing they're talking to you about is, are, if you're here because you're experiencing infertility and that's why you're doing this, it, it's not like basically in so many words, it's not good. Um, because the point of fostering is to, to help the child get back to their family. Um, now there are th- like foster to adopt. And of course, if the situation works out, uh, and that maybe that's not the right way to put it, but like ends up being where the, the family that's fostering adopts that child for whatever reason, uh, like, I'm glad that child was adopted, of course. Um, but the goal should always be that they're trying to help this child get back to their family. Right. So if you're going into it with this this mindset of like, I want to adopt a child because we're experiencing infertility, then you're not thinking about the fact that that child should be with their family. And you're, you're sort of looking at your own needs, not the needs of the child. So that's something that we learned very quickly is that there are some ethical things we had to consider and we still aren't sure about that. We're not sure if, if we would be going in with the right mindset, if we would be going in wanting to adopt someone rather than helping them get to the best situation that's possible for them. Yeah. Through the fostering yeah. program, right? Through the fostering program. Yeah. And then of course, adoption, we're, we're all for adoption, but it's just very hard both financially and like the process is very uh, intensive. Right. So it's not off the table, but, and then of course, like other people's, there are other things that we could do that are also really expensive. Um, and people have offered for us like, 
Has anyone offered to be like a surrogate for you? Yes. So we've had that offer, which is incredibly uh, gracious and kind and just absolutely selfless and cool. And but, that can be super pricey too, right? But that's also really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could also not work, right? Like, yeah. it's still our DNA coming together, right? So like, it, we don't know what's going on with Heather and I. Like, in some cases, like... We, if like, it's, it's physical really or if it's genetic, like... The, that's causing the, mis the miscarriages, right? Yeah, so so some people will go and, like, they'll figure it out. Like, they might know, like, what it is genetically that's going on that, that that's causing that, right? Like, you know, I know people where, like, it's very clear that the man has this thing going on or whatever. In our case, we don't know. We've never figured it out in all of this. We have ideas, but we don't actually know, which makes something like that really challenging because, like, we could spend all that money and it could still fail and then you're you st again have the dis now you've brought in another person into this yeah. uh very physical and emotional toll and you're also feeling it and also you've spent all this money so yeah it's really complicated and it's why like we're sort of in a place where we would love to keep trying but if it doesn't work out then it just doesn't work out i honestly think at some point down the road we will adopt I think that's probably what we'll, what we'll do. But for now, you know, we're not in a position where we can do that. And hopefully someday we will. Oh, thanks, yeah. Darren. And thanks for sharing. Yeah. That's super, that's a super personal thing to like talk about too. I, and I know because we've actually had people reach out to us. I know that infertility is something that like some people that are listening are dealing with and it can be a big challenge and it's, hard to talk about and it's hard to share about so thank you yeah i think i'm uh did a lot of rambling and repeating myself there so i'm sorry but oh, no, you're uh, <laughs> yeah it is it I, I, that's like part of why i wanted to come on and it is hard to talk about so i apologize if that came out kind of clunky but um yeah hopefully someone does benefit or and by the way if someone is listening and does want to talk to me about it i'm would absolutely be fine talking to them about it uh, i don't it's not like we're not in a place anymore where where like it's hard to talk about well this is kind of hard to talk about if someone's experiencing it and and has questions for us we're we're much more open to that and we have, we're kind of an open book um this is a little more challenging i think for some reason <laughs> but talking about <laughs> yeah. it like this but if someone is like wants to talk to us one-on-one -on -one, then we're absolutely would love to talk about it or i'll post your cell phone number out on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get some texts. <laughs> um, what are some of the What are some of the things that you're passionate yeah. about now? Uh, I'm very passionate about art, and I have been since I was very young. That's never changed. Um, and I was drawing when I was really, really little. <laughs> you know, like four or five. I was, um, and I would make like I would make sound effects, and my friends would always comment <laughs> that I would be like, like making karate. Um, Swooshes. Swooshes. Um, or like Tornado. Nick Whitaker was my friend for years. He's still my friend. I love Nick Whitaker. Um, but he, he was like one of my first friends as a kid. Probably my first friend. It was Nick. You guys know Nick, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Nick, uh, I remember one time was like, we were in very young, I don't know, like fourth grade or something. And he was like, I like how you're making the tornado sound. And I'm drawing a tornado and like going, whoosh. <laughs> and so i think like art has always had um like a multi-sensory thing for me like it's been a way for me to like 
Like I was a big daydreamer when I was a kid that made me really bad at school. Cause I just be like off on adventures and like, you know, I'd be like in the comic book or like I, I uh, when I was a kid, like I made Indiana Jones comics that were all storyboarded, like my own Indiana Jones movie. Ooh. Um, and I would like make the camera shots and like draw them all out like Steven Spielberg. Um, so just like I, any way that I could express like these daydreams, basically, I think is where that came from, whether it was, um, comic books. It was so funny that you remember me doing Spider-Man. Cause that's like, that's like what I, that was my bread and butter as a kid. I was so obsessed with drawing Wolverine and Batman. And yeah. So then in high school, I kind of, I got even more into, I started painting when I was in high school. I had a great teacher, uh, Mrs. Smith, shout out Mrs. Smith, really cool art teacher. Even what's funny though is that, and maybe this goes back to the question of like who I thought I was in high school. Like, I thought I was all artistic and stuff. I was like this, this, I had this vision of who I, the, the poet, sing guy. But I think a better way to answer that is like, I didn't have anything to say with any of that. And I, I like, I didn't realize that art was, it can be just formalism, it can just be like raw expression, but. I didn't have anything to say with my art. And later in life, I realized that that's what I really wanted. Like I wanted to say something. Um, I wanted to, I wanted it to mean something. And in high school, I just like, my art was just really my nieces. It was just replicating things, right? It was just copying. And I was good at sort of rendering, but I couldn't translate my like imagination to anything new. It was always just a superhero or like me doing a, like someone's face. I did Adam Bauk. Like I did this really cool chalk uh, or pastel, like a uh, portrait of Adam Bauk that was like, I don't remember. Oh, this, I, I don't remember what happened to it or, uh, or what we did with it then, but I did have the school buy one of my colored pencil drawing. I, I wonder if it's still there. I've wanted for years to like go back and be like, Hey, can I buy this back? Or <laughs> what do you guys do with it? they put it in like their counseling room. It was like hanging like in my senior year, it was like hanging in there. 200 bucks. They gave me 200 bucks. Maybe I'm not supposed to disclose that. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. It was my first, first thing I ever had purchased. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I went way, like I went back to what I liked doing after that when I was in Los Angeles and I started recording like singer songwriter folk type stuff, folk and rock. And I did that a lot. Like I played a lot of shows in Los Angeles. I played in Pasadena quite often. I did a lot of like open mic and me with a guitar, uh, just me and a guitar or with a band. Um, I did that for a long time. I did that the whole time I was in Los Angeles. So for eight years, I was playing very regularly. I, re I made like two records. One one of them I'm very happy with. Um, the Passing the School of Music, I think that's what it's called. Um, one of my friends was a drummer who taught there and knew a bunch of people there. And the some of the guys who record to help record our, our record and we made this very like neil young crazy horse rock like 70s rock style record where and i was like i want this to be live like i don't want to track i want us to record it all together like neil young and crazy horse <laughs> i want it to be just totally authentic i don't know how like good that made it i probably made it like i think there had to be a lot of post done to make it sound okay but it was like a dream to do that like i want to do a record where like didn't track where we played all the, the instruments together in the same room at the same time recorded and we did it. And then all these musicians were all like the guys who had, who played with me in that record. I think they were like slightly confused the whole time because 
I think they liked it, but it's just like so anachronistic. It's so like seventies rock, <laughs> and uh, but it was fun. Like I think they just like had fun with like we were having a great time making that record. So, and I'm I am actually pretty proud of that record. Um, and it was it like it sounds really good because of like this these really cool. And then the people that recorded me in that ended up I ended up doing a side project with them that became one of my favorite things I've ever done. It's called Echo Mountain Highway. That's also on Spotify. By the way, this is all on Spotify if you want to go listen to it. Yeah, what's what's the other record? Can I hear that? Like, So one is just like my name, Darren Longman, and it's called Dry the Well. That's the one that we did that I was just talking about. And the other one is this project. It's called Echo Mountain Highway. That one, there's only one song out. We've made a bunch of songs, but we've only put one out on Spotify. It's another song I'm, I'm proud of. And that one is actually very related to some of this infertility stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, it's called It Won't Take Long. But... Yeah, I, I, I feel like the cool thing about living in Los Angeles is that I got to play with people that were all that are way above me. But the, that opportunity is just there because there's so many cool musicians around. And I feel the same way about my entire music life. Like, I've always been really lucky with cool musicians, whether it's Mario, by the way, we're talking about Mario. He's an incredible musician, uh, writer. And uh, Adam Balk is a such a good drummer. He could do all this like Neil Peart rush stuff when we were like 17. I could never even attempt a, uh, an Alex Lifeson guitar part, but Adam could sit there and put on, you know, like any rush song, put on 2112 and just nail it. And then in these two metal bands we were in, I was with just like really good drummers. Uh, and then in this last project in Los Angeles, I was, it was my neighbor, it was my next door neighbor. And he moved from Germany to be a drummer in Los Angeles. He's such a good drummer. He plays like now he plays with like huge touring acts. And because he was my neighbor, he like just did it because he like your friends. <laughs> so I, just, I feel like I'm just really lucky that I've been like able to play with these really cool musicians who are far more talented than I am. So Darren, do we, uh, do we have any beef? No, but I love that you're still using beef. I think it's very apropos <laughs> of 2004. You're still using that word. No, we are. We already talked about the things we uh, like off recording. We yeah. had a conversation. I don't know if that was beef, but we were talking. Uh, like I was you're talking about what I'm passionate about. Um, and I, let me like just finish that. I'm very passionate about education. It's uh, you know another reason why I'm not pursuing a PhD. I, I want really like teaching. Uh, and at the JCs, I can like really teach. Yeah. So last month, so then for the listener, last month you shared something on on Instagram, and then I like made a snarky comment like, like no. "Hey, mom, <laughs> look, I got the scholarship, or like for eighty grand or something." So then I'm like, "Yeah, it was just like super sweet thing." Yeah. You're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, well, like that's only gonna cover one semester, and you know, and then we just got into a conversation about it. But yeah, we we're talking about education. <laughs> no, it was a really good. And by the way, your points are very valid. And actually, I agree with you on most of that. Um, the education education system is, I hate to use the word broken, because I don't think it's broken. Specifically from a curriculum standpoint, I don't think it's broken. But the sort of, you know, the financials, as, the, the financial, financial side, aspect of education side of it is yeah, in need of reform, right? It needs reform. Um, it's, it's a business and a, way more than it should be. And I think that's pretty obvious to most people. And, you know, I think like where our conversation came from is that I've been listening to you guys and there's, and we talked about this, but like, yeah, there are a lot of comments about like how, you know, school is 
like you can learn outside of school and and of course you can and not everyone needs to go to i totally agree with you guys not everyone needs to go um to college it's it's i i agree with that i think that we're in a world where that's you know we were all taught when we were growing up that we had to yeah and then we were charged you know uh, an insane markup from the same people who told us that we had to go do it and that's a problem so I totally understand that. And I understand that not everyone does need to go like we were taught. But at the same time, there's so much to gain from college that isn't necessarily what's in the book, that isn't necessarily from the tests and the quizzes and the whatever. It's in the conversations with the people who are very experienced in those fields. It's the stuff that you can't get actually in the book. It's the expertise that you can't, it's the communication it's the camaraderie and the ability to work with other people that you're learning. It's the, which of course you can get those things in the field, but school offers you like a lot of opportunities that I think don't exist outside of that forum. So I think one of the reasons I love being at a community college, uh, aside from the fact that I get to teach more is that it does serve the community in a different way, specifically, you know, underrepresented groups and marginalized groups. I mean, it's it's offering something that I think the universities can offer. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of I was a transfer student from a, a city college. So um, I know how important they are for getting people to a place that they may not otherwise be able to get to. And 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 also the pedagogy that the curriculum is very strong the, the at that level, because those people care a lot about teaching. That's why they're there. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you on the, especially on the university level. It's a problem. Yeah, it, it definitely needs reform. I We were talking, Steve, I think you even mentioned this, like one of the super frustrating is how much money goes into sports, which I, the crazy, I love college football, but it's so like problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the money that could be going to these, these education programs within the school that that's sunk into the experience of college whether it's football or fraternities and sororities or whether it's all the all the sort of extracurriculars that go along with the university that that they're pushing really hard because they want to sell the experience and yeah i mean part of that is because there's a real fear i think and i'm not an expert on this but i think there's a real fear i'm not an expert on like very kind of complex um education pedagogy at that level but um I think there's a real fear and I'm seeing it at my institution that people are just going to go online now and they're just going to take like online courses at like random, like not an accredited institution. They're just going to go to like, you know, whatever. Trump University. Yeah. (laughs) Or or like, and there are some that can give you like a degree. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. just, they're not even from like a large institution. So like they're really scared right now that, that students are just going to start doing that and getting these degrees and completely circumvent like the, the the bigger institutions and i think they're really afraid so they're pushing so hard football and all that other stuff yeah well i mean if they can get an incoming and we talk about this gonzo and i a lot but like you just want to have a good freshman class you need a new incoming freshman class and so yeah you market it you sell it you tell this great experience and your team wins and so if you have like a winning team, you know that enrollment's going to go up because people want to go to that school where there's a bunch of winners. Yeah. And then after... A bunch of winners. <laughs> and, uh, not, not intellectual winners. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it's just, it's just interesting. Like I love college sports too, um, but I think the longer I was like... I was at the U. I went to Slick, 
and then I transferred mm-hmm. to the U and I was there like before when they were in the Mountain West and then during the transition into the Pac-12, it's like, oh, my tuition just went up a whole bunch of money, but it was like literally the exact same teachers, same building, same books, but a different conference affiliation and now I'm paying more money and my student fees have increased. Like, yeah, that's But wild. why? Because I'm in the Pac-12 and it was like yeah. so frustrating to me. But this could be like a whole... No, no. podcast series no, I, i'm really <laughs> glad when you told me that last month i was really like i didn't know that and that's so crazy because i i think like where i was kind of pushing back maybe is like the the teachers are trying to improve every semester right like they're trying to make the curriculum better every time like they want they always want that to be a different experience and and, and build on the last time or at least most teachers not all of them right some of them suck but most of them are trying um, and so when you were saying like, you're getting the same books and the same classes and like the same stuff, like I, I think that was where I was like, well, it's not really their fault, right? Like it's not the curriculum, like the curriculum, the teachers, they are trying to be innovative. They're trying to go to continuing ed, but you're absolutely right that like, if you just step back and you're just looking at the experience of your call, you know, of going to class and nothing has changed really, right? Like your experience hasn't really changed that much. And yet you're paying more because they're in the Pac-12 and your product hasn't increased, right? Like your your overall, like what you're paying for hasn't suddenly, your degree isn't suddenly worth more. It's worth more now after two Rose Bowl appearances though. (laughs) (laughs) Employers are really looking at that. (laughs) They think, well, UCLA thinks, I I think they honestly, I, I don't know if they're just using it as a marketing tool or if they really believe this, but they keep doing this like, promotion of the fact that they're like the number one public university and like Berkeley and UCLA go back and forth uh, between one and two of public institutions. And they're always like trying to like get this, this distinction. And I really think that in their minds, the students are going, Oh, nice. Like uh, I can use that on the resume or like people are going to recognize that or whatever. And in the end, no, like they're not like they don't know if it's between you on the resume and someone at USC, they're going to go, OK, well, like they're both good schools. But what else you got? They're mm-hmm. going to look at the other things you bring to the table. It's not like being the number one public university or like a really high ranking private institution suddenly changes the mind of the employer. Right. And they're like, oh, but the number two. Oh, unless they went to that school. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's different. different. <laughs> Steve, you got beef? No beef. Uh, no, I, I love Darren. I haven't talked to you for a long time, so it's been fun. I know I know you and Gonzo have been talking a bunch, but, like, just on the Instagram, like, when we had that discussion last month, like, little things like that have been really great. It's been great to reconnect with you, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. And I've got something. It, it's not yeah. beef, it's carrots. Like, and, and we mentioned last year when we did the episode when I talked about leaving the church, you reached out and, um, and you said, Hey, if you want to talk or whatever, like anytime, you know, like hit me up. And I have like things that I was having a hard time navigating post post, uh, leaving the church. It was good to talk to you through and you've been really helpful and it's been, it's been great. So I, I wanted to say thank you. And your attitude about it has also informed my attitude about speaking about religion with wow. people. Um, well, so I want to say yeah, I appreciate you and thank you for that. 
Dang. Yeah. Man, that makes me emotional. Yeah. I, I think that it's been long enough that I have like a different approach to that now. And I've told you this before, but uh, I left pretty early in my life, um, at least as an adult, I left pretty, I was like 22 or whatever. And so it's been a while. It's been long enough that I have a bit of hindsight to look at it and I don't approach it with the kind of like anger that I did. So like when, when people are asking me about it, like leaving the church, I try to just be like really, I guess, as objective as I can be, because like, if I were to be really angry and like, yeah, like, right. Then I actually think that fuel, like it doesn't, it doesn't do what you think it's do. Like my early interactions with people when I was in my mid twenties were like way more angry about the church. And I would say a lot of like mean things and I don't do that anymore. I, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it really like mean, it doesn't, I don't know. It's just a different, feeling on it like because everyone i think that i thought everyone's journey was like mine i think i just like figured when i was younger that like everyone leaves for the same reasons and like we all should just commensurate about the same stuff and then i realized that everyone's leaving for different reasons or staying for different reasons um or going back it's so complicated it's not like one thing happens right some people leave and then they go back and and if i were to like trash it like could i ruin a relationship because like they're actually thinking that they might want to go back and that's totally fine. Right. And if I like, am I burning a bridge? Cause I'm being such a, like, uh, I had, a, I had this, <laughs> I had this friend who's a psychologist. Um, we were talking and he was like, we were talking about like our past and he, and back when we were in our twenties and he was like, I seem to remember you having very dogmatic views. That really hit me. Like I had never thought about my opinion. Like I know I'm opinionated and I'm really passionate about my opinions but when someone calls them dogmatic, suddenly I realize, like, oh, I was being like whatever I thought the church was doing, I was doing that too, but from this position. Right. Uh, I was being the dogmatism that I didn't that I thought the church was doing or something. So like like that was really eye-opening for me because that's not the way I want to be. And and honestly, like it's been really cool to talk to you about it because I don't know it's been so long since I've been in the church that there's so many things that I don't know that have changed in the time that I left. I mean, the church is really different actually than it was 15 years ago. I don't know. Do you all feel that? Like, I feel like it's yeah, like, yeah, like the tenets of the church, like the doctrine. I don't feel like it, but, but there are, there have been things that have changed in the church. Maybe just, we could even just say like from a social perspective, but I do think that things have changed a little bit and, you've told me things and I'm like, Oh, I didn't know the church's stance on this or this until you said it to me, Gonzo. So like, it's been really cool for me because I wrote this article recently. I'm going to plug this. Plug I my wanted article. to ask you. No, yeah. Gonna bring great article. article. <laughs> uh, I wrote an article for those of you interested for a really cool sort of avant-garde magazine called pipe wrench. And um, I love this magazine. I think they do. It's an online magazine, but they do really cool things. And the format is really cool. It's supposed to be like a dinner party where like someone writes a feature article and then everybody else sort of riffs on it. And the feature article is someone who went on a Latter-day Saint tour through Chiapas and to like different Maya sites, archaeological sites, to kind of like find where like a potential Zarahemla would be or where a potential like site, uh, Hill Camorra or something. So she went on this as like a, a, an outside observer and kind of like documented her time with this group of Latter-day Saints going through on this tour. 
And so she wrote about this and they asked me to write it because I knew that I had this background in Mesoamerica and my backgrounds are history, but as a Mesoamericanist, you're also looking at archeology, span you're looking at religious studies, you're looking at anthropology, you're kind of looking at a number of things. And so I was like thinking about it and I really wanted to talk about like Mormon paintings because I've just found them so fascinating. Specifically the Arnold Freeberg paintings that are like, I'm sure everyone listening, if you're, if you're LDS, you would know the painting of Abinadi before King Noah with the leopards on both sides. It's like a super famous. Yeah. If you have that light blue Book of Mormon in like the eighties and nineties, it's in there. (laughs) They're in there. That one is a classic. Yeah. He's standing there all defiant in his chains. Confronting King Noah. That's the one. I was thinking about these images and sort of the part they play in kind of a larger discussion of, of like using Mesoamerican motifs, using Mesoamerican ideas and thinking about this idea that like these ancient people are actually coming from Jerusalem. Right. And that, that they make up a, a, like the population is actually comprised of Jewish people essentially from the quote unquote old world. And that, you know, some people have darker skin because of sin. And, and so it, I was, this is a, like a perfect way for me to think about both art history and my Mesoamerican background. And, and also my, I guess the third thing, my um, Latter-day Saint background. So if anyone's interested in a very niche article on Mormon paintings of the past, anyway. Check it out, everybody. I read it. It was yeah. great. I, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, Darren, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for yeah, you coming too. on. Thank you so much, guys. I loved it. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, I'll keep. I'll hit you up on one of my other drive homes sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. And we'll catch up some more. And then, if you're ever in town, you know, come by and we can have dinner or whatever. Yeah, I. I wish I could have. I was thinking about going home uh, over the break, and I was like, man, I should just like call him and be like, maybe I'll come over there. But we didn't. We didn't end up making it back. It's. It, I haven't been back in a couple of years, so I need to go. I miss it. I miss seasons. I hate the weather here. It's the worst. You gotta get I away from it. those red ants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you guys see the pustules? Oh, yeah, see. I see them. <laughs> They're basically like zits. Um, for the audience at home who can't see, I got bit by red ants in my hand, and they're all. They look like big, gnarly zits. It's super uncomfortable. I hate the bugs in Houston. It's just. I'm from Utah. Like we don't have like serious bug issues there. We've had a lot um, of snow this year. It's been wonderful. It's been nice. Yeah, I heard that. I heard it's been like really good skiing and and the snow's been good. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to we'll send you Ooh, pictures. Help build the Salt Lake a little bit so it doesn't go away. Yeah. Well, thanks, right, Darren. Hey, thanks it was great lot. talking to you. All right. See you later. Okay. Good Bye. night. Bye. So, Steve. We just got done talking to Darren. What are your thoughts? I got thoughts. First of all, I thought it was great. I I didn't know anything uh, about the background of like the infertility stuff. I I thought it was very vulnerable of him to just share that experience. And I I like hearing stuff like that, things I hadn't considered a lot before. And I think it's helpful for me to hear so that I can then maybe reflect back on conversations I've had with people or looking forward to conversations I may have with people. Cause you never know what people are going through until yeah. you find out. And it can help me to figure out more tactful, better ways to have those kinds of questions. Or maybe, you know what, 
I can also think to myself like, hey, that's not any of my business. <laughs> and I don't have to be super intrusive on people. But um, I thought it was great that he shared. And I also love that he kept saying like, I thought I was all artistic in high school and this and that and whatever. But really, and it's like, but really, he was just freaking artistic. Yeah. Like, I, I want him to just like own it. And he does now. Like, right. That like, He says, my passion is art. Um, and I love that he's gotten into like the fine arts, but he still just loves the music aspect too. And it's like, that's such a huge part of him. I loved it. I, I, he described himself in a way that I would think of him. Like the one he was kind of making fun of himself of like, yeah, I thought I was so artistic. Like that's, that's how that's I remember, how I remember him. him too. Like this. Yeah. And I always, I wanted to bring it up. I forgot, but like for whatever reason, whenever I'm like on Disney plus and we see the great mouse detective and Vincent price is Radigan. I always just remember Darren just like, I think he like loved Vincent Price. <laughs> Vincent Price. Like, I have this in my mind, but it's Darren. But great guy. Like, uh, like we were friends in high school. We didn't hang out a ton, a ton, but like I had a lot of interactions and hangout times with him. And so it was great to be able to just connect all these years later. Yeah, I know. It's the same thing. We were, we were just friendly, um, but we weren't really, like we never hung out together. I think you had more inter- interactions with him than I did. Uh, but we kind of just kind of struck up a friendship over the last year and just calling each other over the phone. Some of the, the stuff that he's told us about uh, the infertility, he had, he had told me about it, too. And he's like, yeah, I want to come on the podcast. I want to talk about this stuff because it's been it's been our big struggle. It's like kind of what he was saying. It's like Heather and I, it's been our big burden to carry. And uh, I want to share it. I want to talk about it. So no, it's great. I, I, I love him. And I I'd love if next time he comes around town or if we ever take that trip to Texas to check out all the sweet Texas spots, we'll stop by his place. (laughs) You know, and I, and I think it would be kind of fun. I know we teased this once with like, maybe with Dustin and Ryan, but like, it would be really awesome to have like a round table discussion about a few different topics. Like Darren brought it up. It's like the abortion laws that all got passed. It's just this blanket coverage of certain things, but then you know, stuff like this, like they're directly impacted. And it's very subtle, you know, it's like, it's not a cut and dry thing. My, like my dad was over, um, my parents were over like yesterday and my dad's like, yeah, all this murder, like that's all like abortion equals murder to him. And it's just like, uh, no, you know, it's, it's not, there, there are lots of things that you don't think about, you know? And I, and I think that that would be a fun discussion because i think there are people that equate that it's like no it's like you're just you're killing a baby that hasn't been born yet but it's like well what about like an ectopic present pregnancy or what about infertility or what about like there's so many different nuanced like different aspects to it that could be instead of just using instead of just using abortion as birth control a black and white thinking yeah and uh but I, i thought that was really interesting i thought he really touched a lot on why are you, why would you want to be a foster parent? And I thought that was really insightful to me because yeah, that's the thought I have. Like if you can't have kids and a lot of times people will probably want to adopt or do foster. I think it was just eye opening. It would be fun to have more time with more in-depth conversations about topics like that. Yeah. That'd be cool. Darren, hit us up. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to be on the podcast, send us an email, jordanhigh2004podcast.gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Right now, we're still... How, Steve, how many voice memos have we gotten on teacher stories? Here, let me check real quick. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, please send in those teacher stories. I've got a couple. and uh, We so. can have a whole episode of just you and me. T- 
about episode. <laughs> Talking uh, about Mr. Allsup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Miss Gillespie. Yeah, Miss Gillespie, of course. Yeah, so um, thank you for listening. Okay, bye. Bye.